1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're picking up this morning, and we're starting in verse 26. And, um, you know, kind of coming off of the book of 1 Samuel last week uh, and finishing that up, um, I, re I really wanted to kind of just take a, a week here and um, jump into another text and see what the Lord might want to speak to our hearts. And um, as I was thinking about this throughout the week, you know, I, I was kind of pondering on uh, some of the uh, the contrasts that we saw with um, with Saul and David at community group on Friday. We kind of talked about um, you know what it is those some of those contrasts. We talked a bit about um, the thing that made David David was his continual pursuit of the Lord, and even though um, he, there were a great many um, times in his life where he had sinned um, against the Lord, where he had um, these various shortcomings, yet David was known as someone who continued to repent. He continued to pursue the Lord, and that was um, really the thing that was remarkable about David. He knew that he would be somebody who would continue to draw near to the Lord, who would um, who would pursue him uh, in repentance when he did sin. Um, and it seemed as though David was continually responding to the love of God in his life, that he would recognize that the Lord uh, had this deep love for him. And so as, as we're kind of thinking about that, I was thinking about that in terms of the context of us as uh, modern Christians, as modern believers, and, and how ought we to respond to um, who God is and his great love for us. And so um, as we, as I was thinking about that, you know, I thought I was reminded of kind of this text here in First uh, Corinthians chapter one. And on the face of it, um, it doesn't really seem like it's one that really remarks too specifically about the love of God. But as, um, as we get into it, we really see that that there's quite a bit here that speaks to God's great love for us. And it's hard for us a lot of times to understand that uh, because most of the time when we think about, um, about love, when we think about how uh, we feel loved, it's on the basis of uh, how others are responding to what we think about ourselves, right? You know that there's uh, throughout history, this has kind of been, been the case. This is why um, you know, we have things like uh, that old sonnet um, by uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, uh, you know, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And, and there's this kind of this um, question that's put forth or, or wanting, someone's wanting to make this declaration. And there's kind of like this call and response. There's someone who is asking um, about love. They're making some inquiry or you know, uh, you'll see this in, um, in kind of our, our modern culture in moments where we're seeing in movies where someone's, uh, you know, perhaps asking the question saying, oh, like, why do you love me? What do you love about me? Let me, let me, let's list those things. Tell me, tell me what you think is so great about me. And, and oftentimes when we get into those uh, relationships um, in, in real life, those are the things that we uh, ask of those who are 
who we're in relationship with. We're, we're kind of posing that question to them. Like, like, what is it that you, that you love about me? What is it that you, um, that you, that you really love? And what, what are the, what are the things that you really enjoy? And, and when we, when we ask that question, a lot of times what we're looking for is for an answer that is a response to of something that we find particularly great about ourselves or that we find particularly uh, lovely. In, in some senses, when we say, oh, you know, like, why do you, why do you love me? Or, or what do you love about me? What, what, we're, what we're really saying there is tell me about how wonderful I am. Tell me about some things about how great I am, about the things that are that you notice in me that you can really appreciate. Those are things that I really appreciate, that I know are great, that I know um, are, are quite wonderful. And I want you to recognize those as well. And of course that feels good as for the person who's asking that question, why do you love me? But in the, in the truest sense, uh, it doesn't really do anything to remark upon the quality of that love shown because you're, that person's really asking like, are you observing the same things that I'm observing? Are you sharing the things in the things that I believe are, um, or that I'm presupposing to be uh, valuable, that I'm presupposing to be uh, lovely. And in, in a sense, there, this is a totally natural thing um, because we want to give the best of ourselves to, to, to others. We want to um, be loved and give out uh, the fullness of who we are to others. And we want others to appreciate that. And the question of wanting to, to feel loved is, is natural to all humanity. But as, as Paul gets to it in the text this morning, uh, what he wants us to understand, what he wants us to see is that we can only truly understand the depth of love when we begin to understand that we are loved in spite of our shortcomings, um, not when we are presupposed to be lovely, when we are supposed to... Um, or recognized to be valuable, but precisely when we are uh, recognized as not valuable, as not lovely, which is a bit offensive to us because we want to say, well, you know, I'm pretty, pretty great here. There's, there's a lot to be loved. There's a lot to be enjoyed. But as we come to the text this morning, what we see is that God sets his love upon us uh, when we are far from him, when we don't have a lot to offer, when we do fall short. And so this is how uh, Paul puts it as he opens his letter to the Corinthians in chapter one. Look at verse 26. He says, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So as Paul opens up, he's wanting to remind the believers, he wants to remind those people who are Christians of their calling. Now, first, he wants them to understand that God has called them. He has called us to follow him, to walk with him. He has called us out of darkness and into light, and he has made this call upon our lives, uh, knowing the fullness of who we are. And Paul says outright here in verse 26, that God's call, uh, it goes out, that it is his work, that, is, that he is the one who is, who is bringing us to life. Uh, he echoes a similar sentiment in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, where he says, But God, 
being rich in mercy. So it begins with God. It begins with his richness and mercy. And then it says, because of the great love with which he has loved us. So he has loved us. This compels him. He has this great love. He is rich in mercy. Then he says in verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So it is God's work. It is God's richness and mercy. It is God's great love with which he has loved us, right? So he's setting this love upon us when we are dead in our trespasses is what um, Paul get, gets at here in Ephesians chapter two. And so he makes that kind of statement there, which seems, if we take it on its face value, quite shocking because there aren't many things uh, in our lives that we say that we can really love or be find valuable that are uh, that are dead, right? That are uh, are completely broken down. But we find here that God's love is set upon us in such a way that there are massive shortcomings, massive failings, and yet He has said, "I love you, and I want to." resuscitate you. I want to resurrect you. I want to bring you back to life in Christ. And, and so Paul, in our text this morning, in verse 26, he reminds us that God's call is on our lives, but God's call is not to the strong. It's not to the mighty, right? As he turns to the Corinthians, he says, look at, look around, look at you guys. Consider your calling, brothers. He's speaking to the church and he's saying, hey, look at everybody here who's in the room. Like, this is not like, like the highest level. This is not the pick of the litter. This is not the group of people who, who are top shelf. This is not the people who are, according to worldly standards, considered to be wise. The people here who are in this room, they're not powerful. No one here is, is uh, born into a noble line, a noble family. He says, look at you guys. There's, no, there's nothing here that's like in very special. You're just a bunch of people. And as we would think about ourselves, as we would think about the church, that's essentially what Paul is saying uh, to the church throughout history, that there is not much about us that is great. We're not inherently wise. We're not you know, just standing out in these very powerful ways. We're not born into these noble lines but rather uh, we are a people who are quite broken down. This is how uh, Paul continues in verse 27. Here's how he describes it. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So first, God calls us who are not strong and mighty, who are not wise according to worldly standards, who are not powerful, who are not born of noble births. But then uh, he turns and he says, but God chose to love you. God chose, he fully knew that weakness. He fully knew, knew that brokenness. He fully knew what was there and he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so he says here uh, something that he actually um, 
again, repeats a similar phrasing. His theology continues uh, even into the book of uh, Ephesians again in Ephesians chapter one, verse four. He says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, right? So we have this description of God loving us, of God calling us, of God choosing us. And he says here that we have been chosen, that the Corinthians have been chosen, not because they're so great, not because they're so strong and mighty, but precisely because they're foolish, because, precisely because they're weak. This is the situation that we are in. We have been called by God. We have been chosen by God, not because we're great, but because God is great, because he has done great things, because he is at work. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about us being these um, things where these people where we're saying, oh, well, pick me. I'm so valuable. I'm, ve I'm very strong. You know, I'm very noteworthy. But rather, God says, there's weakness there. There's brokenness there. I can work with that. I can do something there. I can uh, empower. I can gift. I can enable. I can love that weakness, that brokenness. Paul, uh, in the earlier verses of chapter one, he explains this a little bit more explicitly, uh, what God is doing here in verse 21. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So there's a value system uh, that is laid out by the world, that's some type of wisdom that they are looking at. And then there is the folly that is in view of the world, that the world sees, oh, that's a foolish thing. That's uh, something that appears to be weakness. Uh, Paul says in verse 21 that it pleased God through the folly, the foolish appearance of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, what Paul's getting at here is that uh, God loves to bring about an attack. He loves to uh, demonstrate that the wisdom of man is nothing compared to the foolishness, quote unquote, of God. That as God's most foolish perspective, uh, it is greater than even man's most lofty opinions of man's greatest plans of the wisdom that mankind would have to offer. It is God's foolish plan that he loves to use in order to uh, belittle the wisdom of mankind. To uh, He takes pleasure in it uh, here as uh, Paul says in verse 21, that it pleased God. That he sees his work on display in contrast to the foolishness of uh, his foolishness in the contrast to the wisdom of mankind. And so God does this by uh, working through these plans that appear to be foolish to the world, but also by using the foolish things of the world, by using the things that are broken, by using the things that are weak. This is how he uh, describes it in verse 28. God chose... He selected what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing 
things that are. So God called, God uh, loved us through that calling, God chose us uh, and demonstrated that love towards us and selecting us uh, when we are weak, when we are, are low, but then he's also using these things that are low, these people who are of low uh, position and low stature. God shows what is low and despised in the world. The things that the world tends to discard and say, eh, you're not of much value. Who, what are you going to do? How are you going to be useful? Somebody who appears to be uh, of little value, the Lord says, I can do a lot with that person. I can do a lot with that individual. The things that appear to be weak in the eyes of the world, the Lord uses uh, in mighty ways. I mean, if you think about this in perspective of uh, the biblical story, you know, we find, of course, in the incarnation that Christ comes not in the form of a mighty warrior, but he comes in the form of an infant. He comes as a baby. There could be nothing more vulnerable, more weak, more subversive to attack the power of Rome than a, an infant. What, what a secret attack that is, right? What a secret plot that is to bring about uh, the downfall of Satan's sin and death through a helpless child. And yet God uses what is low in the world uh, to bring to nothing the things that are. The biblical narrative is full of God using people who are low in stature. If you look back at the Hall of Faith, the Hall of Faith is a description of just people who just continually blow it. They, they've messed up. The biblical narrative is full of people who have messed up but it's their demonstration of faith in God's character, in his promises, in his covenant that allows them to move forward for God to use them, right? For God to do a great work in their life. It's that they are flawed, that they are broken. I mean, if you think about Jesus's life and his first disciples, uh, there were fishermen and a tax collector. I mean, these were the social outcasts of this time. It's not like he was uh, grabbing the most influential neighborhood leaders and those who were savvy politicians of their time, but rather uh, God was choosing uh, the everyday man, just the, the general purpose individual uh, that could have been anybody in that ancient time. And God was working through these uh, genuinely normal individuals. But yet, under the power of God, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we're able to do radical things uh, for the sake of the gospel. We're able to do radical things for Christ. And so God is working here, Paul tells us, through the things that are low, through the things that are despised, even the things that are, are absolutely nothing, he says, to bring the things to nothing, the things that are something. He's working through those who are so low, who are nothing, so that he might specifically humble those who appear to be strong. That he might specifically demonstrate that the strong, uh, their efforts 
are not good enough, that they are not strong enough, that their foundations will be shaken if they are built on the wrong thing, right? No one's going to get to the point where they're, where they're standing before God and saying like, I figured you out, God. I figured out the cheat codes. I know exactly what to do. I know how to get here. I, I know the way, right? The only way is Christ. That's what Jesus said, himself said in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to the Father is through Christ. And so if you want to know the Father, you've got to know Christ. And so uh, Paul continues on here and he says, that God is working to bring to nothing the things that are. And we get some insight into the purpose here in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That there might not be any of us who say, I did it. I made my own way. I made this happen for myself. That there will be no one who can stand before God and can say, I earned my way here. I stood before God and that I balanced the scales myself that I said, I deserve to be here on the merit of my own works of my own efforts of what I have done. You see, God's not looking at your work, but too often we're focused on our own work. Have we been good enough? Have we done enough? Have we been kind enough to other people? Have we cared about other people enough? But what the scriptures tell us, what the Bible tells us, is that God is looking at Christ's work because his work is perfect. The only work that God wants to see is a perfect work. And if we have erred at all, if we have sinned in any way, then our work has already been ruined. And so the only way that we can have that work is if we come to Christ, if we are in his work. If we belong to him and are so identified with him that when God looks at Christ, he sees that we are hidden in him. And this is how Paul continues in verse 30. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul continues and he says, God has called you. He has chosen you in love. He has um, said that he wants to work in you and through you so that uh, there might not be any boasting for humanity. But now he says that, he has put you in Christ. He has given us an opportunity not to be far from God, but specifically to be in Christ, to be in that perfect work. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ." In God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul's claim here is that when you become a Christian, when you trust in Christ for salvation, 
when you have made that step and said, I am okay with being weak. I know that my life will not be perfect. I know that I cannot please God on my own. I know that I need his help. I know that my work, my scales will never balance. I know that my work will never be sufficient. But I see that Jesus's work is perfect. And I see that his work is sufficient. And I see that he freely invites me to be with him and to be in him. And Paul says, when you make this choice, your old self is dead. And you become so closely identified with Christ that you are in him. Paul says that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That you are so about Christ, that you are so connected to him, that you are so closely identified with him, that when, uh, when Christ appears, then you are with him, that you are in him. And, and this is what uh, Paul's getting at here in his letter to the Corinthians. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, right? God loved us by putting us in Christ Jesus, by giving us that opportunity to find our identity, our home within him, our safety and our security within him. Uh, but more than that, he also loved us and demonstrated that love towards us uh, by helping us to receive that wisdom that is Christ, right? We don't have to be peop a people who are strong and mighty. We don't have to be a people who are wise, but we have to receive the wisdom that is Christ. We have to uh, receive that wisdom by receiving Jesus, by receiving uh, the wisdom of God, which is the person of Christ. Uh, that we find that in hiding in Christ, uh, we find that we take refuge in this act of the defeat of Satan, sin, and death through the death of Christ. An absolutely like upside down way to attack your enemy, to defeat death by dying. But this is exactly what Jesus does. And so we find here that we receive the wisdom of God by receiving Jesus, because Jesus is the wisdom of God. But Jesus is not only uh, wisdom for us. Uh, Paul goes on and he says that he is also three things, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So the wisdom of God, his work in, in Christ, provides for us these three things righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Three other places uh, that Paul gives us to let this land in our hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter um, 5, verse 21, he speaks to uh, kind of these three concepts all in one when he says, uh, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's Christ doing that work, becoming for us wisdom, becoming for us righteousness, becoming for us sanctification, becoming for us redemption. And it's God's work. He's accomplishing this on 
our behalf. He's loving us by letting Christ become this wisdom, this righteousness, this sanctification, this redemption for us. Paul goes on in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 11, <clears throat> and re reminding uh, the Corinthians that they were people who were dead in their sins and trespasses. And he says, but then you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So he does make this declaration that we were people who were sinners. We were people who were enemies of, the, of, of Christ. We were far from him, but yet we have been a people who were washed, who were sanctified. That's what it means uh, to be sanctified, that we are uh, called out, that we are a set-apart people, that we are, as he says there, we were washed. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That we have been set apart from that old life and we are no longer a part of that old life. We are no longer our old selves, but we are now a new people who are pursuing Christ daily, looking to be in Christ, to be so closely identified in him uh, that when God looks upon us, he sees the work of Christ. Lastly, uh, we find the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14, speaks to the work of redemption in the life of the believer, as he says uh, in this in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So he brings about this work of redemption, the author of Hebrews tells us, uh, that he destroys the one who has the power of death. He has come to conquer our flesh, right? He has come to conquer sin. He has come to conquer death. He has come to conquer Satan, and he alone has this victory. He alone accomplishes this work. We stand alone on his work, on what he has done and what he has accomplished. It's not our work. It doesn't belong to us. And so we cannot boast. We cannot brag about these things on our own behalf and say that we have made it, but we wholly trust in his work. This is why Paul continues in verse 31, and he says this, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He says, if you want to boast, if you want to brag, you should boast in the Lord. You shouldn't say that I did this, that I, my work is great, that I'm trusting in what I have done, in, in my efforts, in, my, um, in, the, in the things that I've done, but I'm trusting in the sacrifice that Christ has made on my behalf, that he has accomplished this work on my behalf and that his work is perfect and that, that we ought to boast and brag about the work of Christ, that he has accomplished it, that it is finished is his work that he has finished, not our work. And so Paul says, uh, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? And here, what's happening is Paul is 
using this as a throwback. He's calling back to the book of Jeremiah to roll this back out into uh, the new covenant people so that they might see and hear the instruction of the book of Jeremiah in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Here's uh, what we read there. Thus says the Lord. So here's the Lord giving the instruction. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Right? So again, the Lord doesn't value the wise man's wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. So again, the mighty man doesn't have much to boast in because his might is nothing compared to the might of God. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. So if you think that you have the safety and security of riches, if you think that you are set, your riches shouldn't protect you. You shouldn't find this great value and glory in them. But in verse 24, he says this, but let him who boasts, anybody who wants to make this claim, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, right? So knowledge of God, that he knows and understands that there's a relationship there, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all of the earth, right? So the steadfast love, the steadfast uh, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness cover all of those categories of uh, boasting in wisdom, boasting in might, boasting in riches. He says that God in God is found all of these things and boast that you know God, that you have knowledge of him and that you understand him. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So Paul's pulling this back out from Israel's, or yeah, from Israel's past into uh, the Corinthian future, into the new covenant people's future to say, if you want to boast about anything, boast that you know the Lord, that you understand him, that you are confessing that he is a God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, that he is good and right in everything, in all things. And he declares that he delights in these things. And so Paul pulls these things out so that we as God's people might understand that God is glorified when we look to his might on display, his justice on display, his love on display, his righteousness on display. That we are boasting not in our own efforts, but that we know and understand him. That we are confessing that we are nothing without him. That we are wholly leaning upon his work. And so the question, as we discussed in the beginning, of wanting to feel loved is natural to all humanity. But as, as Paul explains it, as he gets to it, he says, the question we shouldn't be asking is, why, why do you love me? So that we might be satisfied in how we feel um, that the person who is loving us rightly understands that we are of value. 
But he says here that we can really only understand this. We can really only um, truly see that we are loved in an honest way with an explicit emphasis on our shortcomings. When it's not that we are particularly lovely, when we are a people who are weak, when we are a people who are broken, when we are a people who are low and despised in the world, when we are a people who are foolish in the eyes of the world, when we are a people who are not wise according to worldly standards or we're not powerful or not of noble birth, it's only then that we can really truly understand that love at the deepest level because we realize that what it does is that it offends our sensibilities and that we don't feel lovely. We don't feel like uh, we have something great to offer, but what it, in fact it does instead is that it magnifies and it makes more beautiful the quality of Christ's love, that he would set his love upon things that other people might not value. But he says, you're so valuable to me that I'm willing to give my own life for you. It, you might not have perceived value to others. The world might not value you. You might have shortcomings, but I love you so deeply, even though I know you so fully, that I will give my own life for you. And, and when we understand that, it helps us to look upon him with a new light. It helps us to look upon God with a new heart that helps us to remember that he has fully known us, but yet fully loved us. There's nothing hidden from him. And so we can understand that the depth of his love is true, that it is without reservation, that it is just in every way, because he's not going to be surprised. He's not going to be confused and all of a sudden find out something about us that he didn't know that would change his love for us. But that his love stands the same regardless of what we've done because he is working on making us into a new people that are filled with his love and his power and his authority. And he wants to use us, those people who are weak in the eyes of the world, who are foolish in the eyes of the world, he wants us to, to use those people who are willing to look away to set their eyes off of themselves and to look on his sufficiency, to look on his work, to look on his efforts. He wants to use those people. He wants to use people who are willing to humble themselves, to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow Christ and to uh, rely on his strength, on his wisdom, on his empowering, on his righteousness, on his protection, on his empowering, on his work. He wants to use those people so that he might confound the wisdom, perceived wisdom, of those who are wise in the eyes of the world, who might demonstrate and think that they have this superior power. And so if you are somebody who has this perspective that you don't have much to offer, that you're weak, that you don't have the fullness of knowledge or the right perspective, or you don't have the experience. Well, the scriptures tell us you're in a perfect place to be used by God. If you would only confess that and stop pretending like you have to be strong. God is 
so excited, so attracted to weakness. He wants to use those who are, who are willing to confess that he is what they need and that they do not have it together. If we would only come and say, God, I do not have what I need for today. I don't have what it takes. He's all too happy to say, here's the wisdom for today. Here's the empowering for today. Here's the skills and abilities and gifting and resources that you need for today to follow me, to bring me glory. He's all too willing to provide for those who are willing to confess their need of him. And so embrace that weakness, embrace that foolishness that the world perceives you in, that maybe you perceive yourself in, and trust in the fullness of Christ. Trust in his sufficiency, that the power of Christ might rest upon you, and that he might empower you to live for his glory, that he might give you all that you need in order to be strong. We finish with these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul struggling with his own situation, right? We always think of mighty Paul and doing all of these great things, but Paul had the same situation. He had struggles and hardships, and he had one particular struggle that he was often seeking the Lord for in prayer. And he asked the Lord to take away this struggle, to take away this issue in his life, uh, this thing that he felt was hindering him. But the Lord told him uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. He's like, you don't need me to take it away. You don't need me to make it easier for you. You need me to provide grace for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Right? This is what the Lord told him. Don't worry about getting rid of that. Don't worry about being stronger. I will, I will give you exactly what you need in your weakness. And then Paul said by response, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He didn't say, well, the Lord said no about that weakness. And so like, I guess I'll learn to live with it. He said, no, I'm just going to get more excited about it, that I, I, am, uh, I am more empty, that I do not have what it takes, I, that I do have this weakness because Christ is promised to be strong on my behalf, right? Paul goes on and he says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And what Paul means there, what he says there is that not that he is strong, but that Christ is strong in him, that he receives the strength of Christ, that God might be glorified in him and through him, and that God will keep his word to empower him daily to live for his glory. And so as we consider the love of God this morning, he has called us and demonstrated that love by calling us. He's called us not to make us feel good, where we're said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to tell you all the things. I called you because you're very strong and you're quite handsome and you're quite lovely and you have these skills and abilities and you're quite beautiful. But rather, he has called us as a people who are weak, who are broken. He's called us as a people who are foolish in the eyes of the world. He's chosen us, but yet he has 
also demonstrated his love and that he has given us the wisdom in Christ. He has given us, uh, he has given us righteousness. He has given us sanctification and redemption through the work of Christ and called us out to live for him through the work of his empowering, through the work of his strength. And so lean not on your own strength, lean not on your own work, but trust in the continuing solid work of God. Lean not on your own work, but trust wholeheartedly in what he has done and receive his love as he has declared it over you through his work at the cross. Rescuing us from Satan, sin, and death, demonstrating that he has loved us when we were his enemies, when we were far from him. What more wonderful love could there be? What more could we receive from one who, is, who would lay down his life for his enemies? It's a radical, radical proposal and something that is so countercultural to the world. But he valued us. He loved us so deeply that he was willing to accomplish this work for us so that we might know him, we might enjoy him, we might uh, pursue him. And so um, let's pray. Let's respond together as uh, we say thank you. We say thank you for saving us and for uh, bringing us into that relationship together. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your everlasting love towards us. We're thankful that you have uh, shown us your love, that you've shown us your faithfulness at the cross, and that we never have to be wondering, we never have to be confused about that love because you have um, been so clear in showing us that love when we were your enemies, when we were not lovely, when we were opposing you, when we were crying out for um, your destruction, yet you were pursuing us to show us your love, your kindness, your fullness of love. And so, Lord, we receive that. We repent of our sinfulness, and we want to cast ourselves upon you and only you and your perfect work. Thank you for your kindness, your compassion towards us. Thank you for your gentleness. And so, Lord, we rejoice together this morning as your people. We love you. Amen.